Welcome to the ADHD Essentials Podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm an ADHD professional who has been working in the field for 10 years. I'm on the organizing committee for the International Conference on ADHD and a board member of the Men's ADHD Support Group. In today's episode, we talk to Sushi Despande, founder of Learnfully. Sushi talks to us about how Learnfully helps neurodiverse kids access education. She discusses the importance of figuring out your kid's learning profile, the role anxiety plays in education, why support has to work for both the family and the kid, the power of getting diagnosed as an adult, and the importance of trying differently rather than harder. All right, let's get rolling. My name is Suchi Deshpande. I am the co-founder of a company called Learnfully. I also have two boys who are neurodiverse and have ADHD. And I myself got diagnosed with ADHD about three years ago. So a lot of what we do at Learnfully is, you know, based on life experiences. And we're here to help not only the learners, but also the families that work with the learner. Awesome. Can we start with sort of your parenting journey and then kind of how that led to Learnfully? Is that okay? Absolutely. Boy, this started probably about eight years ago, you know, when my first kid got diagnosed with uh, high functioning autism. And it was quite interesting. This was when he was three. And it was kind of hard because we had a lot of doctors, you know, who are trying to pathologize him, right? So they're very good at telling you what's wrong. But they're not very good at telling you that, hey, the flip side to this is that these are all the strengths that are essentially are accompanying all the challenges that he's going to be facing. And so that took a lot of digging. And I think my husband and I, you know, we had the drive, we had the resources. We're like, there's got to be something better. And we kept digging and digging and digging and hit upon executive functioning at some point. And, you know, everything clicked. And we're like, okay, so you don't make giant gains by telling a kid, you really stink at this. I want you to spend 40 hours a week doing this. The way you get them going is by saying, oh, this, these are the kids' strengths. These are their challenges. Let's use this and you know remediate his challenges or his or her challenges based on this. So this is not revolutionary, by the way. This is something that's you know been proven by science. That's what behavior therapy is because they want you to be in a good state of mind. They want you, you know, because the biggest step is you need to believe that you can do it. And if you're told that you can't do it, then you won't even try and attempt it because these are smart kids. And so once we hit upon the revelation, from then on, it became like this journey to, you know, how do we essentially make this broader and let parents know that this is what you need to do, not go into, you know, IEPs and, and cling to your hopes that, you know, school will essentially help you solve this. We want parents to get more involved and we want to give them solutions uh, that are specific to them so they can see their child make gains over time. And then this is something that works for the family, by the way, not just the learner. And that's awesome because often tutoring services, and this is not exactly a tutoring service, but that's kind of the closest model that we have is focused mostly on the kid. There's not that expansion of the family as well. Right. There's two pieces of Learnfully that I'm already wondering about. The first one is, is what are you doing with families? How are you helping to support them so they can support their kid, right? In an academic sense. And then the other one is tech enabled. And I'm like, oh, what does that mean? Can we start with the family stuff and kind of play with that? What's going on there? So the first thing is, 
ADHD, dyslexia, you know, it's not like uh, a lot of these can get diagnosed right away, you know, like a learning difference. It's only when kids are going from learning to read to reading to learn is when they start falling through the crack. And what's really interesting is that I worked in the autism sector, I worked in the learning difference sector, I worked in the education sector, and every parent has the same amount of anxiety and the same stages of the journey. Like the first thing that they do is there's a problem. And so guess what they go to? My kid's not trying hard enough. He or she is really smart and they're lazy. So we're just going to put them in, you know, Kumon or, you know, other kind of tutoring where they have a one size fits all solution and they're not implement, you know, they're not trying to understand how does this kid learn? They're just trying to get you to memorize stuff. And in fact, that's essentially why a lot of them kind of fall through the crack, because up until second grade, they can kind of get by by memorizing and, you know, doing all these things. But by third grade, what starts happening is they start noticing that they're a little different and anxiety kicks in. And that anxiety is so detrimental. Like you have to get ahead of that because that is essentially the beginning of I can't do it. I'm not good enough. And so what we do at Learnfully is label or not, you know, one thing we know is, look, parents are either afraid of that label, you know, a lot of them are, you know, in that denial stage of no, it needs to be tutoring, but then they don't see a difference. Like six months later, they're like, yeah, you know, if it's like the same concept, then yes, they're able to do it, but they're not, they're not seeing them generalize the information, you know, across all environments. And then I think it takes six months to a year. And, and now there's this urgency of, I need to get my kid in. And then there's a one-year waiting list. And then you get to the psychologist. And then they're like, here's a list of all the problems. Good luck. And you're like, oh my God, what do I do? Parents go through a lot. And there's a lot of anxiety and the kids falling behind. What we want to do is forget the diagnosis. Come to us when you think there's a problem. Because we're not going to give you a diagnosis. What we're here to tell you is what the learning profile is. What are their strengths? What are their interests? And then what are their challenges? Because at the end of the day, even if you go to a psychologist, you're not necessarily going to get that learning profile. You're going to have to get someone to reevaluate it anyway. So do your thing, but don't let your child fall behind. So we'll help you determine the learning profile. And then we'll connect you to resources such as content or a therapist who, uh, and we call them a therapist because not only do they have teaching credentials, they also have a child development background. And what where this comes into, play, into use is they essentially know when a kid is anxious. They know how to understand the difference between does the kid have the skill or is he or she not performing because something in the environment's not working? You know, to give you one example of that, you know, when my kid was in kindergarten, you know, the teacher was like, he can't do his ABCs. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about because we've been drilling this into him for a while because we, we were trying to get ahead of the game. We knew what was going on. But then I realized he is not taking in verbal instructions and because they're just going in one year and going out the other. He just has auditory processing issues. But if you write them down and put them there, he's going to do it. And it made a difference. It's not like the kid can't do it. It's that, you know, there's this one size fits all where they're trying to get everyone to essentially, uh, you know, follow the same set of rules. And, and that's not how the world works. And a lot of teachers, believe it or not, are not trained to look for these. So to them, it's very black or white. And parents take that feedback 
and assume it's all black and white. But the reality is there's a kid who can do something, but only in certain environments. And then there's skills that are missing. So our goal is to figure out exactly where the breakdown is and start from there and then help them generalize it even in the school setting. There's a lot in there that I want to kind of play with. And one thing I want to make sure that I uh, explain. Early on, you mentioned that shift from learning to read to reading to learn. And that typically happens like late third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, mostly fourth grade, fifth grade. Your mileage may vary based on your kid, based on the school you're in, that kind of stuff. But fourth, fifth grade, sometimes third grade. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's I've, I'm going from learning how to read. I'm, I now know how. And now we're using reading as a tool to expand what I can learn. Kids who struggle to learn how to read, this is where that falling behind thing comes in is I am not as good of a reader as I'm being asked to be by my class, by my teacher, by my school system, whatever. And that's causing problems for my ability to comprehend what's being taught. That's a piece of this potentially. That's a, that's an element. And, and certainly Learnfully is helping kids learn how to read so that then they can read to learn. Another thing I want to talk about is just that role of anxiety, right? Anxiety is a thing that comes up on the show a fair amount. It's a major component of my parenting groups, getting that anxiety locked down and handled. Just personal stories, not even going into clients, although certainly I have clients who have struggled with that pretty mightily and we do our best to help navigate it. But as a kid, I had trouble with like spelling tests, vocabulary tests, that kind of stuff. I had a teacher in fourth grade who would literally call my house at dinner time and give me quizzes over the phone. Because I couldn't do it in class. There was just too much anxiety and I would shut down and wouldn't be able to pull it off. But I knew all my stuff. She would call and I would do them over the phone and get like 90s and 100s kind of equivalents. That anxiety piece is no joke. My son, who is a monster math kid, absurd in terms of his math skills. This is my listeners know there's been some struggles in my house. It's kind of threw the podcast off a little while. That's the level of challenges we're facing This kid in particular is the one that's struggling. Homie still got into honors math, despite the incredible amount of anxiety struggles he's been having. And even when he was younger, in third grade, they suddenly had to do like timed math tests, like just one times two, five times six, like that kind of stuff. The 100 questions that are all single digit number plus minus addition, subtraction, multiplication, division stuff, right? One plus one, two times two, whatever. He couldn't do it. He couldn't, even though he's a beast with math because of the anxiety. And we would literally walk on a treadmill and I'd drill him and he knew everything, but he had to walk on the treadmill to get that anxiety managed. And you can't really do that at school. So learning how to navigate that is important. So I'm glad that you're honoring that in the course of talking about this stuff. That's critical. I think it's extremely critical. First of all, Love your teacher. I hope I hope you know where she is. And that was forever ago. <laughs> what's what's I mean, I'm tearing up, but what's really sad is that you know, most kids who have ADHD or dyslexia and you know it went undiagnosed for a long time, they essentially attribute their success to, and the ones who've been successful, they're like, oh man, there was that one teacher that really believed in me. And when you know, you want to talk about anxiety, and and yes, anxiety is is like the symptom. Of, of, of what's happening, right? It's, it doesn't tell you why you're anxious. My kid could be anxious because 
he's looking over and his friend finished the test faster than him. So that gets him all frustrated. He, he doesn't know how the kid did, but he just looks over and he's like, oh, you know, that, that kind of causes anxiety. So he ruined his test. Or maybe the first problem is really hard. And so I've lost hope in like the entirety of the test. Like how many of us have done that? And so I've learned fully what we do is like we, we recognize that the kid's anxious, but everyone knows that the best way to get over anxiety is first to understand what's causing that anxiety and then essentially start dealing with that. And so that's a strategy. So that way, when they are in this real situation, they're able to use that strategy. So that's generalization. And so that's essentially our goal, generalization. It's not about doing, getting your homework done or having hundreds on a take-home test and then you know not doing so well when it's left up to them to essentially have a performance score. Uh, not all kids learn the same way. And there's different things that trigger them. And, and it's important to know what triggers them. I figured out years ago that basically everything is anxiety. If you're struggling, if there's a challenge, anxiety is in there somewhere and you got to figure out what's going on, right? When people talk about self-medicating through substance misuse, you're self-medicating the anxiety that your whatever neurodiverse thing is causing. That's what you're self-medicating. You're not making things easier by being drunk and having ADHD at the same time. That doesn't make it easier to have ADHD. It just tamps down the anxiety or lets you ignore it. I share that so, so people know that I now appreciate and honor the anxiety of myself and others so that I can then share a story of jerky Brendan in, in college. Because one way I used to treat my anxiety that was wicked obnoxious was when I was in college, we had these little blue books that you had to write like a long answer and essays and stuff in the little tiny blue notebooks. They had like 20 pages or whatever not a lot of space. And what I would do like way too early, like midway through the test, maybe a little before midway through the test, I would get up and get another blue book. Like I had already filled my first one because I knew it would tweak out everybody else who noticed that I got up to get another blue book. And that made me feel calmer. Interesting. You know, sharing my obnoxious ADHD stuff that I did in my late teens, early twenties. But I wouldn't do that now because now I, I have more empathy, I guess. But that's that's a strategy, right? Is like, I'm going to manage my anxiety by doing something. And it's not uncommon for we ADHD folks, especially the younger ones, to do something kind of obnoxious because it makes us feel a little calmer because at least we're like, haha, I fooled people or whatever. I want to pivot a little bit. I was looking at your educational specialists and a lot of them have various certifications after their names. What got me was the OG certification because <laughs> okay. the audience knows I'm an old 90s hip hop kid and I was right back to Ice-T and like OG is original <laughs> gangster. And I knew that couldn't possibly be right. But like you're on the West Coast, so maybe. And I was thinking carefully about it and I was like, I'm wrong. So I looked it up and it's Orton Gillingham. And I was like, of course it's Orton Gillingham. That makes sense. That's reading. Can you talk to us a little bit about like, what are these certifications? Why do they matter? What do people want to be looking for? Why does it make Learnfully the place to go? Because you're clearly filtering for these certifications. One of the criteria, you know, for our specialists is that they need to be really good rappers. Just <laughs> you know, there is no one single certification. You know, there's like many ways of doing it. At Learnfully, what we believe is that we're not married to a program. And the reason we're not married to a program is because each program 
you know, whether it's Orton Gillingham or Linda Moodbell or, you know, any kind of executive functioning program, there is no one size fits all. So what's important is when you get this learner profile and when you get the kid essentially like through a very inexpensive and quick assessment that we have, what it tells them is what program is going to work best for them. Because kids with, uh, you know, say who have symptoms of dyslexia have no problem comprehending, but they, but they have trouble decoding or reading. And then um, you have someone with ADHD or high functioning autism, they have no problem decoding, but they have trouble comprehending because they're not storing enough information, you know, in their working memory to essentially comprehend like big chunks. So there's many of these, there's dyscalculia, you know, there's writing, there's math learning differences. And the thing is, it's really important not only to identify what, what to work on, but it's equally important to pair them with someone who essentially is trained because there's like a element of tactile, you know, it's not just let's memorize these times tables or drilling in these letters. Like there's multi-sensory instruction going on, whether it's virtual or in person. And what you're doing is you're using their strengths as to like, even with B, right? You know, you write it with a pencil, but then they make them draw a B in sand. You know, that's tactile. And so it's there's different ways of getting the information to stick. And it's very important to adapt to what the kid is learning or how they're doing, which is why you absolutely need someone who is not only trained in the program, but is also getting feedback from the kid and making small adjustments so they are doing their best work over time and then getting the right results. But if you go to, you know, a tutoring center, uh, you know, look, tutoring centers do wonders for like a lot of kids, but you'll often see like a high schooler who's, who's given a sheet or, you know, some kind of generic, you know, writing stuff. This is what needs to happen at third grade level. And then and, and here's like steps one to 10. That's great. But it doesn't work for everyone. And the thing is, and there's a huge difference between stick to the program versus how do we get this kid to learn faster? How do we make use of their neuroplasticity and essentially fire these neurons so you can essentially get more out of them as time goes on? Not, you know, let's just kind of put this in their memory bank for now and, and then they won't know how to, you know. One example I'll give you is high functioning autism brilliant kid. He knew his times tables, everything. But what he really struggled with is word problems. What's two plus two? He can do it in his sleep, right? But if you said, hey, John had two apples and, you know, James had two apples, how many apples did they have together? And he'll just draw a blank. Yeah. But that's essentially what we try to do at Learnfully is that how do you generalize this? How do you apply what you've learned and the foundations into other areas. When it comes to word problems, a kid that's a whiz at math may very well struggle with word problems because it's not math, it's language. Exactly. Right? There's math hiding inside of that language, but it's wrapped up in language. So if you can't get through the force field of language, you can't do anything with the math hiding inside. That's why, or a piece of why, word problems are often so challenging for kids, right? It at least where I teach and where I, where I've, I should say, at least where I've taught and where I work, like in Massachusetts and the East Coast, there's a lot of effort put into like differentiating that and recognizing that it doesn't mean word problems need to be 
ejected from the mathematics curriculum because they don't. But we need to recognize their unique role in arithmetic and mathematics and what to do with that and why they're really assessing more than just math. That's correct. And sometimes, you know, parents get confused too, right? Well, this happened to me, by the way, because when my kid's in second grade, I'm like, I don't get it. You can do two plus two. You can you can decode. I, I, I thought it was reading. But why aren't you able to get this problem? Like, you're not trying hard enough, you know? And, and it's before I realized that, oh, my God, like, we have word problems, multi-step word problems in first grade. Like, you know, so neurodiverse parents are not big fans of Common Core, you know, especially like with the, all these complicated names, you know, it's like, what are you trying to do? Yeah. You know, it's like so defeating for all these kids. And they're like, oh, I suck at math. And in fact, a lot of parents come to us and say, oh, you know, my kid's really struggling in math. What's good about the assessment is we can say, nope, he's struggling in comprehension. And so let's work on that. So that's the other difference between a tutoring center and us is that if they say, oh, my kid sucks at math, they'll, they'll quickly get to work on math and not try and understand the root cause. And it is a little more of an expensive route. But in the long run, it pays off so much because, you know, if not, you're just kind of reliant on these foundations and tutoring where a kid has to make the connections themselves versus, you know, we're kind of making a lot of progress and now they're ready for their next challenge. And so it's it's continuous improvement, continuous feedback. And then there was a question that you asked of what does tech enable mean? Yeah, let's go there. As a parent, I saw what my kid was going through, and this is such a fragmented market. You know, I was looking, doing research and found that, you know, especially with parents who have, uh, you know, autism, 65% of the women lose income, you know, as a result of this. And, and of course, as you know, my husband's a huge supporter of my career. And there were many times when I was like, should I quit because it's getting overwhelming? And he's like, absolutely not. Keep going. They'll be fine. And so... I fortunately had that support, not saying that others don't, but, you know, it's very hard to cope with it. And when I started, you know, looking in the industry, what I realized is, oh, my God, like my kid has like five or six things going on and I have to comprehend every single thing, put two and two together and then essentially figure out how this fits into the ecosystem and what works for us. So by the time you recognize that it's it's too late, you know, you've moved on. And so when we started Learnfully, you know, with Lita, who was my boss at one point, still is, and my co-founder and CEO, we were like, we need to help parents as well. Because first of all, Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. ADHD, I was looking at my kid and I was like, oh my God, that sounds exactly like me. And I got diagnosed. And there's a lot of parents who are undiagnosed. And what happens is they don't see it as, oh, my kid is struggling. A lot of times they see it as, I went through the same thing when I was a kid without knowing that that's unusual. So why, why is this, you know, kid struggling when I figured it out? And so, you know, when we think back, we were kids a long time ago, that was a huge struggle. And that, you know, brings a lot of fears and stuff that, you know, we probably don't remember. And so that's why it's very important for us to have something that works for the family, not just for the kid. It needs to kind of be pervasive in like every environment. And where tech enable comes in is uh, the way the industry is kind of set up is it's very inefficient. You have one specialist who doesn't talk to the other specialist, who doesn't talk to the teacher. And, you know, it's, it's data and it's like all over the map. 
like we don't want to lose sight of the human element because we want to talk to the parent. We want to hear them. We want to hear what they're going through and then try and understand where the issue is and where our tech really comes in is in the data piece. So we're not just doing assessments every six months. We have continuous you know, data, whether it's behavior, how did, how did they do in the session? Uh, you know, we're not only focusing on performance, but we're looking at parent is spending a lot of money. They have certain goals to get to. This is their learner profile, which again is a lot of data. This is the program and this is the resource we've set them up with. Are they heading in the right direction in terms of progress? You know, we don't want to say, oh, let's wait for six months and do an assessment, you know, like a discrete assessment. We want to keep doing it continuously. And then we want parents to know where their money is going. So, you know, we send out like updates that make sense to them. You know, like the, the therapist or specialist is taking notes in a way that makes sense to them or taking data in a way that makes sense to them. What is the Orton-Gillingham level they're at? It's like a parent doesn't care. You know, they're like, are they approaching grade level? So there's like a certain amount of translation that goes in to essentially support that parent as well. But where we're essentially going with this is that we want, this is like a personalized learning system. And it's going to go on from K through 12. And kids change all the time. So we really want to be able to talk out a roadmap for your kid. So when you're in second grade, say you come in, you know, they're probably going to be like, okay, my kid, I know, sucks at X, Y, Z. So they're never going to be a doctor, but they might be a brilliant engineer. So how do we kind of focus on that and get them on the path to that? You know, so that's essentially the type of roadmap that we want to create for parents, give them a little more clarity without limiting their options and continuously measure the kid's progress. A few times now, you've said like, you're not trying hard enough. Like that reflex when the kid struggles, especially early on. And even as time goes by, we kind of have that reflex. I know better and I fell into that reflex. All of us have. Like a few months ago, I don't fall into that often. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to pretend that I am that I do. But I did. And it, we, my kid and I battled over it. I have a podcast that talks about that. But that whole concept of not trying hard enough, I certainly heard it when I was a kid. And the way you get your kid to not try is to tell them they're not trying hard enough. Because at first you're like, I'm trying so hard and it's not hard enough. And it's not because they're not trying hard enough. It's because they don't know what way to try. Like there's a lot of different ways to try hard and they don't know, they don't have the strategies to try effectively. And as a result, we're like, you're not trying hard enough. And, And yeah, I can't lift this like incredibly heavy thing, no matter how hard I try. But if I get like a winch or a crane or even just a lever and I try differently and I try effectively with like a pulley system or something, all of a sudden I can pick this heavy thing up. That doesn't mean I wasn't trying hard enough before. It means that no matter how hard I tried in the way that I was trying, it was never going to work. A lot of what you're talking about speaks to that, where you're helping parents figure out how their kids should be trying so that they can stop thinking of their kids as not trying hard enough. And so they can stop telling their kids they're not trying hard enough. Because when we tell our kids they're not trying hard enough, they go, oh, well, then I'm not going to try because I can't try any harder than this. If this isn't hard enough, I'm just going to stop because I'm burning myself out and you're not giving me any credit. And then the the other piece that I want to kind of touch on is that notion of parents who go, I figured out why can't my kids? Because I hear that too. And and ladies and gentlemen, 
when you figured out how to navigate your ADHD or how to deal with your anxiety or whatever, were you also living in a world that had social media where the pressures of school never went away because they followed you home on your phone or in your Instagram? And had you lived through a worldwide trauma event in the form of a global pandemic that uprooted everything in your life when you were 6, 10, 15? That stuff plays a role in the abilities of our kids. My kids, compared to their friends, my kids are pretty independent in a lot of ways. One of my sons walked over to his friend's house today. Like It was like a 20-minute walk. It's far enough that the dad texted me when he got there to let me know that he made it safely. And that was normal for me as a kid. Like Just hop on your bike and go ride somewhere. And I've been trying to instill that in my kids this summer. I was like, just go ride someplace, guys. And they don't want to. So it's been a little bit of a battle because that's not their world. And if they rode to their friend's house and knocked on the door and were like, hey, what's up? That feels like a huge risk to them. And to all of their friends, by the way, not just my kids, like that, the culture is not as comfortable with kids just being out in the world as it used to be. And that also plays a role in our kids' ability to perform because that means they're taking less risks. Kids now don't spend as much time by themselves and independent with no adult watching them. Most kids' activities involve adults there, right? At sporting events, at someone's house, whatever. When I was a kid, I was like in the woods with no adult supervision for huge amounts of my childhood or riding my bikes around town and stuff. And that independence meant I had to learn some stuff that my kids haven't yet, no matter how hard I try to make them. And and like, I'm like, hopefully next summer we can do more. Because And some of it is there was no, nowhere for them to go. Their friends didn't have any interest in that stuff. Yeah, no, actually, a lot of it, uh, there's two things I wanted to touch on. One is, you know, parents saying, don't try hard enough. Uh, and, and this is my own personal experience. So take it for what it is. But, you know, my husband and I actually realized that, like, we had an excellent, excellent resource, Andrea Travisano, who essentially really helped us understand that, guys, I know you're living on the hills, you know, it's like secluded, this is in California, but these hills are so steep, they can't ride a bike, they can't go to their friend's house. So, you know, when we moved to Denver, we're like, we want the opposite of that. And now, you know, a weekend, they're riding their bikes, and you know, they can go wherever they want. It's like, we just forgot that how much EF develops from being independent. You know, it's like, how did you remember to turn in your homework? I'm like, well, I forgot it a couple of times and I got marked zero. And so I got it in the next time. And my mom was like, you're on your own. Like, you got to do this. But me, on the other hand, when they were younger, if they would forget something or like drive to school and like drop it off. And I'm like, I'm doing them a disservice. So I think parenting has changed. The expectations have changed. You can be labeled a bad parent if, you know, you're not taking them to 10 uh, extracurriculars a week or, you know, not having the best lunch for them or making their life as efficient as possible. So that is like a plea for let's get back to a simpler life where kids are making their own mistakes and learning. You're not being labeled a bad parent, ladies and gentlemen. That is not happening. You're labeling yourself a bad parent, maybe, but there is no like mysterious official body who gets to decide that you're a bad parent. It's not a thing. It doesn't exist. We all feel that pressure. I'm not going to pretend we don't. It's a thing I talk about in the parent groups, but it, it's not real. 
Like we could be interacting with our kid in our house with it's just the two of us. And we still feel this weird pressure of like, if I do this wrong, someone's going to know and I'm going to be a bad parent. It just isn't real. It's not a thing. I recognize there are cultures out there that are like, where depending on your level of wealth, depending on your specific like religious practice, that kind of stuff can certainly play a role here. But how healthy is that culture if that's what's going on? Are these really your people? Like, that's my question. I don't have a good answer. No pressure. We're doing fine. If you're listening to this podcast, you're doing it right. Because people who aren't doing it right probably are not listening to this podcast. It's a safe bet you're doing something right if you're actively pursuing information about how to help your kid. I think I need to get into this community even more than, you know, because look, I think the you're absolutely right. But there is an element of you don't know that you're doing it right. Like there's all there's like that doubt all the time, right? Because there are people saying, oh, you don't do that? Well, I do that. And then all of a sudden you're like, crap, am I a bad parent? It, it takes a lot to have that confidence to say, you know what? I don't really care. Mike, you know, this is what's happening. These are their goals. Like, you know, in order for that to happen, you need validation, especially if you are undiagnosed and you're diverse and you, you carry that anxiety with you. And I think that's, that's really hard. And like one example is again, you know, with me, you know, I got diagnosed like three years ago and everyone's like, well, not everyone, but you know, someone like, what's the point? I'm like, what's the point? This, this showed me why I hate cooking. <laughs> you know, <It's> like, <laughs> I was like, oh, so it's not like I'm a bad mom. It's, it's just an e, it's an EF issue. It's an executive function issue because there's so many steps to it. There's like shopping. And so when people are like, oh, this is like relaxing. I'm like, I don't see that at all. Like what's wrong with me? And then, you know, there were all these traits that I thought were bad that started to make sense. And that's when I started getting that confidence of, I get it now. You know, it's like when, when, when that door busted open, it just answered a lot of why, which I was not asking, you know, because that's how I grew up. I'm a girl. I'm supposed to be shy and, and not aggressive and, you know, like I, you know, not boisterous. And so there's a lot of stereotypes that the culture does introduce and that kind of carries on through your life. And so a lot of times we don't know any better until we essentially, you know, kind of open our eyes to this kind of an event. And also what's kind of scary is that a lot of women, the average age for women of getting diagnosed with ADHD is 39 because it comes off as I am completely overwhelmed. So, you know, you touched on the, why don't you try harder? I've done that a week ago, probably, you know, I'm still not perfect. What I had the luxury of realizing is I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I've stretched myself way too thin. The best way for me to recover from this is go watch a Netflix show or go on a walk. <laughs> Nothing big, you know, just do a little bit of a reset. And then I come back and then, you know, my husband, uh, not my husband, my son and I have a calm talk. But say if this was like five years ago, I would genuinely carry that rage of why are you not doing this? Like, I don't have that empathy because, you know, it's like my life is so hard. You're making this hard for me. Why do you want to make life hard for me? But, you know. I'm in a different situation now. And, and I wish I knew this years ago. I think my life would have been different and I would have advocated for myself a lot more. That whole idea of like, why are you making my life harder? Why are you making my life so hard? I hear it a lot. Here's the reframe for that. 
the person who is struggling, and I, I kind of drew this from my wife used to get chronic migraines. She still gets headaches a lot, but not as bad, where she'd be like debilitated. Like once a month, she was down for a day and she was she was getting 20 migraines a month. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Big, big number, right? So she was often like cranky and grumpy and in a bad mood because she's in pain. And then about once a month, she was down for the count. It affected our family pretty significantly. I just was like, no matter how bad this is for me, no matter how much this is impacting my life and I can't go out and do something because Amy can't watch the boys or whatever, no matter how much it's affecting me, it's worse for my wife. And I've carried that with me to my interactions with parents and my interactions with my boys and all that stuff. No matter how much this is making things hard for me because my kid is having a meltdown or my kid doesn't know what they're supposed to do for homework or whatever, it's worse for them because it's they're the immediate sufferer. And I can just slow my roll and shut up and be support instead of taking it personally and getting cranky about it, which sounds like you got to the same place. I'm not criticizing you or anything. I'm just trying to share this this insight. So the audience that's listening, if anyone's stuck in that, like, why are you making my life hard? Because you didn't do your homework or whatever. Like it's harder on the kid because they know you're upset with them. They know you're disappointed. They know that they don't have homework to bring to school. They know the teacher's going to be disappointed. They know they're falling behind, whatever that means to a 10-year-old. Like if there's a lot of other stuff going on and it's worse for them. And the best thing we can do is forgive them and support them and bring compassion to that so that their internal monologue doesn't turn into, you're not trying hard enough. You're an inconvenience to everyone else. Why can't you just figure this out? Because they'll just say that to themselves till they're 50, 60, 70 dead. And we don't want to put them in that spot. So. No, absolutely. And, um, you know, one big thing is that, you know, even I get told that, oh, your kids have ADHD. It's like, just make sure your house is organized and structure and there's like visual visuals everywhere as to visual <laughs> timetables everywhere and you'll be good. And I'm like going, Oh my God, like I can't even keep my desk clean, even though I know everything, where, you know, where everything is. And so it's, it's hard, but I think, like I said, the difference has been that knowing has helped me understand what's good and bad. As you said, it's given me the strength to say, I don't think I really care about that. I'm going to focus on this because this is what's best for my family even with that, yeah, you're right. We're all stretched thin. And just being mindful of time, do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? Yeah, no, I mean, I feel like we rounded everything off. I didn't want to start like a new topic now. So yeah, I think we're good. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts, or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at adhdessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, adhdessentials.com, and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.